So we are continuing our journey through this letter to Ephesus. The Apostle Paul wrote, and you are invited to get the devotional guide that we are now in. It's going to end at the end of August, but it is out there at the welcome desk, and we have printed there the scripture we're hoping you will hide in your heart, which is Ephesians 2, 1 through 10, which we addressed last week and thought about last week, the great way that God saved us by His grace. And so today we're going to follow up with verse 11 of chapter 2 of the book of Ephesians. If you have your Bible, you can turn over there. This is great scripture. I love this text. Some things about it may be a little hard to understand. We're going to go back through it after I read it. So listen up and think about it. Therefore, remember that formerly you who are Gentiles by birth and called, the un, the, or called uncircumcised by those who call themselves the circumcision, which is done in the body by human hands, remember that at that time you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel, and foreigners to the covenants of promise, without hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made the two groups one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, by setting aside in his flesh the law with its commands and regulations. His purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace, and in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross by which he put to death their hostility. He himself is our peace. Where does your peace come from? I learned quickly as a reporter, a new cub reporter at the Times-Picayune, that I had to get the who, what, when, and where down right. And I had to make sure I spelled Boudreaux, Thibodeau, and Chapatulas right. And that's not easy. Place names and surnames. I had folks call the newsroom. They'd give me the call, and I'd try to talk to them. I couldn't even understand. They were speaking English, but it was difficult. And I had to write the obituaries. Think about that for a minute. I wrote a lot of obituaries with all their surnames in it, Cajun people who, big families, and I had to get it right. I remember the first story I turned in, I thought I was a pretty good writer, I had a degree in journalism, had some success writing even already as a young man, and they brought the story back from the copy desk, and it was a mess, and the editor, Vince Randazzo, the city editor, he told me, David, you put the lead in the 11th paragraph. You can't do that. And it was all marked up. I had to learn how to write again, getting the who, what, when, and where. And I went to the scene of crimes with the who, what, when, and where in my brain. Go to a crime scene in Uptown. Somebody had a carjacking. And I go in there and I observe things. I write them down. The car's parked over here by the stop sign. There's a there's a wheelchair 
in the gutter there by the curb. I wonder what that wheelchair is doing there. What in the world is this? Asking questions. Asking people what happened. Why is a wheelchair sitting there? Well, the man who was driving the car was disabled. Okay, what was his name? How was he disabled? He, he couldn't use his feet to use the pedals. Okay? So the carjacker came up to him and stuck the gun in the window and said, I want your car. And the disabled man tried to explain to him that he, he was disabled, he couldn't walk, and the man was frustrated. He shot into the car. He went through the bullet, went through the arm of the driver, went through the leg of the passenger. Get all that right. Okay, then what happened? He pulled the driver out of the driver's seat. The carjacker jumped in the car. All right, but he couldn't, he couldn't drive it. Why not? Well, the car was modified so that you couldn't use pedals. Had to use hand controls. It took him long enough to realize he couldn't drive the car that the police arrived and they caught him running away. An interesting story. It's one of those stories I remember because it happened early enough in the shift where deadline wasn't pressing on me. So I spent some time writing it and tried to really get it right. Who, what, when, and where, how the story unfolded. And uh, sometimes they'd make an appointment when they had the news, the editors get together, they'd say, okay, now this guy did a good job, so you tell him that. So when I arrived that next day, they all came by. Hey, Crosby, good job on the, on the carjacking. And I learned about who, what, when, and where how important it is to get the story right. I introduced last week the idea that this is the story of you. So the who is still you in this text. It's still you. The who is you because you are a Gentile and the whole world's divided into Jews and Gentiles. Gentiles are those who do not have any physical connection to Father Abraham. You're not a descendant physically of Abraham. So when the apostle turns to his readers and says, as for you, he's talking to them as Gentiles. He's a Jew. The apostle is a Jew. He's talking to the Gentiles. And he says, as for you, you were far away. That's the story of you. And nobody would have thought of you coming close to a Jewish Messiah or being part of what God started with Abraham. All that was, was a surprise. It was a, a great mystery that God intended to include you in his story of salvation. You are the who. And the when is... Now, in this text, there's a turn in the text here. In the King James, the first 10 verses of the chapter have this, but God, which is a great turning point for the text. In these verses I've just read to you, there's a but now. There's a but now. And the when is, is now in this passage. It's, it's the story of this Gentile congregation now that God has reached out to them and included them in the family of faith. And all of us can relate to that because everybody's got a past. 
And maybe your past would have never indicated that you'd be sitting in a pew in a church, reading your Bible and praying. Maybe that's your past. It never would have indicated that. You were so far away from this kind of life. But now, but now, look at you now. Look at the now of you. And don't let your past overwhelm your now. Some people think that their past, they can't get free of it. They can't get rid of it. They live in the shadow of their past, and, and they can't let the present be all it can be because of their past. You need a but now in your life. The when is now, the who is you, and the where is near. But now, you who are far away have been brought near through the blood of Christ. Where are you? You are near. You are next to. You are up with. You are in fellowship with the God who rescued you and reached across time and space to touch your life and bring you to himself. Who is you? When is now? The where is near. No. Nobody would have predicted that or thought about it for these Gentile believers. The Gentiles were as bad as the Jews about excluding people. If you didn't grow up in a certain Greek city-state, they called you a pagan. They used the word ethne and translated pagan. It's the same word the Jews used to describe everybody who's not a Jew. They're an ethne. That's the Gentiles. We get the word ethnos, ethnic, from it. And so they excluded one another. And the Apostle Paul writes as a Jew to these Gentile believers. And he says, you know, one time your situation was really desperate. You were Gentiles. You were separate from Christ. Christ is the title. Messiah, the promised one. You were separated from the promised one. You didn't have a promised one in your past, in your teaching, in your religion. There was no promised one. You weren't looking forward to the Messiah who was going to come. The Messiah came out of Abraham and Moses and the prophets. In the Old Covenant, that's where the Messiah came from. You were separate from Christ as Gentiles, you see. You weren't part of that. You were excluded, he says, from citizenship in Israel. You weren't part of the people of God, the Israelites. You didn't go into the promised land you weren't part of that people that conquered that land. You didn't follow Joshua in that great triumphant march. You were excluded. Say, you couldn't be a citizen in Israel. Israel, the name means prince with God. It was Jacob's new name. And Gentiles were excluded from citizenship. Even if they converted and became proselytes and went through that long, arduous process of making that conversion, they were still really outsiders. Excluded from citizenship in Israel and foreigners to the covenants of promise. You can go through the covenants. You've got the Abrahamic covenant. God made with Abraham. You will be my people. I will be your God. Through you I'll bless all nations of the earth. You can read about it in Genesis 12. You had a covenant before that, the Noahic covenant, the covenant with Noah. Every time I see a rainbow, I think about that covenant that God made with Noah. He would never again destroy the world by water. That covenant is still in effect. 
Then you have the covenant given to Moses. The book of the covenant is in Exodus 20 through 22. You can read, they call it the book of the covenant. And Moses was the mediator of that covenant. And we Gentiles were strangers to that covenant. Strangers to Abraham's covenant, strangers to Moses' covenant. These are the covenants of promise. And we were on the outside looking in. And Paul says, summing up, you are without hope and without God in the world. Without hope, he says to the Gentiles, who really felt, as the Greeks did, that history just went round and round, like lots of people do. It doesn't really have a beginning and ending. It just goes round and round and round in meaningless circles. It was the Hebrews who brought to us the idea that history is linear, that God is the creator, that he is purposefully watching over his creation, that he is carrying it somewhere on purpose, and it will culminate in a glorious culmination one day. And so history is moving somewhere, the Hebrews taught and the scripture teaches, but Gentiles didn't have that in their religious teaching, in their culture. It just went round and round without hope and without God, he says, without God in the world. It's a word for atheist, without God. The Greeks weren't atheists. The Gentiles weren't atheists in the way that we think about it, saying intellectually, I don't see that there's a God. I don't believe there is a God. That's not the kind of atheism that's talked about here. No, this was the kind of atheism that was memorialized in, a, in an altar they built in Athens on Mars Hill, where among all these gods, they built this altar to the unknown God. And Paul the Apostle, who wrote this letter when he got to Athens and to Mars Hill, he saw that altar to the unknown God and he told the Gentiles in Athens, he said, I want to talk to you about this God because you are atheists in that you don't know about him. It's your knowledge of God, your understanding of God. You've got all these gods, but you don't really don't take them seriously. And some of them tried to find the one God. But their atheism was a lack of understanding about the God who made heaven and earth and everything in it. He said, you are Gentiles, for heaven's sake, separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel, foreigners to the covenants of promise, without hope and without God in the world. But now you who were so far away are brought near through the blood of Christ. How? The how is Christ in this passage. And I have to say it's Christ because the description takes a paragraph here that I've just read. He himself is our peace. We already see that he has been bringing us near through his blood. It mentions the blood of Christ. And everything about this description of how centers around not only Christ, but Christ in a particular place, doing a particular thing. Jesus dying on the cross. That's the heart of it. That's the center of it. He brought us near by his blood. When we, when we think about the blood of Christ, we immediately go to the cross. Because that's where he shed his blood. 
The scripture says that the life of the flesh is in the blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. So Paul says we are brought near by the blood of Christ, that somehow the sacrifice of Christ upon the cross has made it possible for us to bridge this great chasm between us sinful people separated from God and a holy God who loves us. And then the scripture talks about how he did away with the law, the regulations and commands in his flesh, in his flesh. And so we have the mention of the flesh of Christ. And once again, we think about the cross and what Jesus did at Calvary when he, the only law keeper in the whole history of the human race, the only one who actually kept the law in every command and nuance, hung up to die. Why? So he could break the law's hold on us. The law that we could not keep, that we failed to keep, that became a burden around the neck of every Jew who pretended they kept the law but knew in their hearts they couldn't keep the law. The law was too big, too wide, too complete. It expressed the holiness of God, and that's not who they were. Neither Jew nor Gentile. In his flesh, he broke the power of the law that brought us death. He kept the law perfectly and then died in our place for our sin. The innocent for the guilty. Why? that we may be reconciled with a holy God. The Bible says here that he brought these two groups into one body. When we think about the body of Christ, again, we think about the cross. And then he culminates it by saying he did all this stuff. He removed the hostility through his cross. I tell you, thinking about the cross of Jesus Christ, it'll consume a lifetime. All that God did on the cross, what it means, Paul the Apostle put it in the center of the book of Ephesians. The death of Christ upon the cross. But you think about the intellectual question that so many people have. Why do bad things happen to good people? What about pain and suffering in the world? I remember visiting with a prisoner in a county jail in Texas. I went in there to see him and try to give him comfort and talk to him. And he started crying. He said, I just don't understand how, how if there's a God who cares about us, how he can let these little children die. He was all brokenhearted about it. I didn't have to point out to him that he was in jail because he's gotten his fourth DWI. And this time, driving home in the dead of night drunk, he ran a stop sign and killed a young dad with two kids waiting at home. See, anybody can ask the question, why is there evil in in the world? And be blind to what they have contributed, their own participation in the difficulty and sorrow of the world. And what God does to respond to our question about pain and suffering in the world is this. He sends his perfect, innocent son. He lets him be born in a manger where the cows eat. He grows up as a peasant. In a first century world. And he lived life perfectly, beautifully, 
Every word he speaks, people hang on his word. They watch him and they love him. They love how he cares for the downcast and, and the poor and those the world sees as wicked. He just loves them all and the love of Christ pours out upon them and, and they gather by the thousands to hear him speak and watch him live. And then God the Father lets wicked people hang him up to die. And in that moment, God puts all the sin and brokenness and sorrow of the world on his son. And Jesus scoops it into his own heart as he dies. In other words, he takes the question of pain and suffering to the cross. And he says this for sure. I'm with you in your sorrow and pain and I understand it. You're not by yourself in dealing with the agony of life and suffering of life. I'm with you. King David knew that. He's the one that wrote, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I'll feel no evil for thou art with me. They understood the presence of God in the midst of their pain. And oftentimes it is pain that drink, brings us to the point of looking up for hope in God, for strength in God. Sometimes it's the pain that makes us turn. God used the cross of Christ to address the trouble and pain of the world. How is Christ? And why is peace? The why is peace. God did this in order that Jesus Christ might bring peace. And it's a surprising peace. It's a peace that begins as Jesus brings together in his body on the tree, Jew and Gentile. That's what he says. He says here that Jesus breaks down the dividing wall, the partition, that wall of hostility between Jew and Gentile. Jesus brings it down and he unites them in his death upon the cross. What that must have meant to the apostle Paul as he wrote this from prison in prison for preaching the good news about Jesus. But perhaps he was thinking back to that time in Jerusalem when he went to attend the feast and he took a Gentile with him named Trophimus and some of the Jews from Asia Minor recognized Trophimus in the company of the Apostle Paul and they assumed that the Apostle Paul had taken that Gentile past the barrier in the temple and into the sacred space that was reserved only for Jews. They found that inscription in the 1800s that was raised up there on Herod's temple, which said that a Gentile could not pass this barrier all around that sacred place. And if they did, they would be subject to death. That a Gentile would be killed if he passed that barrier from the court of the Gentiles. And they called it the court of the Gentiles. That's where all of the Money changing went on and all of the animals were sold. When Jesus cleansed the temple, he went through that court of the Gentiles, cleaning it up. And Paul was accused of taking the Gentile past that barrier into space reserved for Jews. And given the death penalty by the Jews there for that false 
accusation. Maybe the apostle was thinking of that wall that said, no Gentile, no Gentile can come to the holy place or approach the holy of holies. No, on, on, on threat of death, you stay out of here. And thinking how Jesus in his death on the cross brought down that wall. You know, it would only be a few years till that wall literally would be pounded to pieces by the Roman army. And the temple destroyed. You have to find it now archaeologically digging in the ruins. Jesus died on the cross to bring down that wall. He himself is our peace. Why did God do this? To bring you peace. Do you have his peace? Do you have his peace in your heart? Do you have peace with God? All that God did was to bring you peace. Maybe you feel a little bit like I felt sitting on a train in some place in the state of Chiapas, Mexico. The customs official had found us and discovered that my younger teenage brother Danny did not have his passport. We tried like everything to hide it because he'd had it stolen in Mexico City. But no, he found out, Danny, he went through the passports. We gave him all 11 of them. He found out there were 12 people who didn't have a passport. He went through until he found out the youngest one of us, Danny, didn't have his passport. That's when the customs official said, well, he's going to jail at the next stop. So they're going to throw my teenage brother in jail in Chiapas, Mexico, at the next stop. The mission to have, that's uh, Andrew's dad. Raise your hand, Andrew. He looks kind of like Andrew, actually. But that, back then, he was just 16 or 17 years old. And we had to spend 10 pesos to keep him out of jail. Customs official took that. They were trying to check for, for folks from Guatemala who were coming in illegally. So we had sort of a traumatic experience on this train, not just with the customs official, but with people who were carrying snakes and, and chickens and, I mean, live animals on the train and all kinds of things. It was a very strange place. A little flickering dome light in the, in the car. Going through the thickest jungle I'd ever been in on the Pacific side of Chiapas, not too far from the Pacific, though I didn't know it then. And the sides of the train were completely black at 1 a.m. because you couldn't see a thing anywhere, no lights or nothing. And all of a sudden, our train rolls to a stop. And we can hear the engine going, until the sound disappears. And we're sitting in the silence and the dark in the middle of the jungle in Chiapas, and the engine has left us. It's just passenger cars. And it was a moment <laughs> to think about as a young man. You know, what you're going to do? I'm so glad the engine came back and got us. About an hour later, we hear, and then boom. And he reconnects. There are people sitting in the dark, in the silence, feeling alienated, like foreigners, by themselves, feeling excluded and wondering what life means. And there's no engine coming to get them, they think. No Messiah, no hope. 
And Paul's writing here and he's saying, though you've been separated, though you were excluded, though you felt like foreigners, without hope and without God in the world, God did something amazing. He sent his son Jesus who died on the cross to give you peace. And he is your peace. The human conflict that you experience, Jesus is the peace for the human conflict. He sent us in the world to be peacemakers. He makes peace between Jews and Gentiles, which seemed impossible. He brings them into one body. So whatever trouble and trauma you've experienced in your family, in your relationships, whatever, Jesus is your peace. And you can look to the cross in the middle of the trauma and the anxiety and the conflict that you're in, and you can see Jesus hanging on that cross and dying and know that he will give you strength to get through this, that he made peace through his cross where he died, and therefore he can bring you peace in the human conflict and problem you've got right now. Jesus died, not only that you may be made right with God, but that we can be made right with one another, that he can be a source of peace for us in our relationships. It's amazing here. This kind of peace, this peace that brings people together is the first one mentioned by the apostle as he says, Jesus himself is our peace. How so? He brings Jew and Gentile together as one. And not only that, he brings them both to be reconciled to God through his death on the cross. Reconciled means that you're made right. The relationship is fixed. It is put back in place. God intends to make you right with himself through his son Jesus. This hostility that is mentioned right at the end of the passage is important because we've already had the word atheist used in the passage. Atheism, without God in the world. And we tend to think of atheism as intellectual. But this atheism had a hostility in it. There was, there was a hostility to it. And that is typical of most practical atheism because what our problem with God is is not really fundamentally intellectual. It's an open question intellectually. But when it comes to morality, that's where the hostility comes in. Because we are hostile toward God as Lord. God as sovereign and God as ruler in our life. The hostility comes in with our sin. And that's really often at the root of our atheism. Is this desire to do life our own way, not God's way. And so we are hostile toward any claim God makes on us. Jesus came and died on the cross to show you that God is a God of love and he loves you and his holiness is satisfied in the sacrifice of Christ and you can be right with him and part of his family as you trust in Jesus to forgive your sin and to save you and to make you his own. Bow with me, please. Heavenly Father, I thank you for your presence in this room and your love for us. God, would you demonstrate your love to that person who feels least loved? Would you demonstrate your presence to the one who feels alienated and far away? 
by your Holy Spirit, will you draw us to yourself? Lord, will you cover the distance between us and you? God, I pray that even today, someone will be brought near through the blood of Christ. That their win would be now as they trust Jesus as Savior and Lord. We commit this moment to you. In Jesus' name.